News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Doc Gary told me was that it was my fault because I put myself in that situation. And the combination of these and him being paraded around, them letting him take the Stanley Cup to a high school with kids after they knew what had happened, there's no words to describe it. That is Kyle Beach in an incredibly moving interview done yesterday with TSN senior correspondent Rick Westhead. I highly recommend you watch the entire 25 minutes. He came forward and said that, yes, I am the John Doe that everybody has been talking about and all these stories about the Chicago Blackhawks. You probably heard this week that the team, well, the general manager resigned. Uh, they've had sh- sh- a lot of shifts in the front office. They've been fined $2 million by the NHL because of what happened to Kyle Beach. Have a listen to a little bit more of the interview. The only way I can describe it is that I felt sick. I felt sick to my stomach. I reported this, and I was made aware that it made it all the way up the chain of command by Doc Gary, and nothing happened. It was like his life was the same as it was the day before, the same every day. And then when they won, to see him paraded around, lifting the cup at the parade, at the team pictures, at the celebrations it made me feel like nothing. It made me feel like I didn't exist. Kyle Beach, so incredibly brave in that interview. Now, he is the player who says he was sexually assaulted by the video coach on the team. And this is back in 2010 during the Stanley Cup playoffs. So earlier this year, the Blackhawks had hired a law firm to conduct what they called an independent review in response to two lawsuits that had been filed against the franchise. What that review found was that there were a lot of meetings with some of the senior people on that team right after this happened, and essentially they chose to do nothing. They waited to take action until after the Blackhawks had won their Stanley Cup. But the person accused here, Brad Aldrich, his name is on the Stanley Cup. He went on to be a video coach at some other institutions where there are more allegations that he sexually assaulted young players. How is this all going down in Chicago? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Joe Brand, sports reporter at WGN Chicago. Joe, thank you for joining us. No problem, Simi. Thanks for having me. What has the last week been like in that city, especially if you're covering the Chicago Blackhawks? It's been a whirlwind. Uh, that's absolutely sure. Um, you know, because over the past week, the main conversation about the team has been the struggles and when all of this really came to light with what was found from the Black and Jenner investigation two days ago, just really opened up a, a whole new, um, I, I don't want to say story or side of this whole thing, because there had been rumblings about this, but nothing as detailed and definitive as what was found in the Black and Jenner investigations. And uh, I'll be honest with you, fans are, are upset, they're distraught, they're not sure how to feel. Uh, the current Blackhawks administration now um, is put in a position where, you know, they have to be sensitive to everything that has just happened because it, it is very serious and it's it's a a big swing and a miss by the administration oh, eleven yeah. years ago. But but this is a new administration. They need to try and 
and not so much convince, but show the fan base and show the hockey world that they would not have allowed something like this to happen. And uh, everybody that was involved in that 2010 meeting is no longer with the team. And as far as the Blackhawks now are concerned, they feel that they've done that step, and now all they can do is just try to make sure that this does not happen again and move forward with it. But, of, of course, you know, there's, there's right reason for a lot of people to be upset right now. Also, I was following along last night after the Blackhawks played the Toronto Maple Leafs, and a lot of questions for Jonathan Taves, for Patrick Kane, who are the two players who remain from that time. Do you, I felt like those, their questions weren't adequately answered. How did you feel listening to their comments? Yeah, it, it was, well, number one, it was a surprise to hear them both talk because Patrick Kane's been on COVID protocol since Thursday. So he hasn't even skated with the team publicly in over a week. Jonathan Taves was not at morning skate before the game yesterday, and he was a late addition to the lineup being cleared from COVID protocol. Then he joined. So that was kind of a surprise. I don't know if anyone was really expecting to see them. Uh, And Patrick Kane addressed the media from his home. And, yeah, I hear where you're coming from because some of the answers don't entirely line up yeah Patrick Kane Kane had said that um, he had not heard of teasing in the locker room or homophobic slurs Um, but then he he does later on go on to say that he had heard rumors of the situation Jonathan Taves was pretty descriptive of the first time he had heard of it he said he he doesn't want to exonerate himself from not knowing but he did first hear of it the first day of training camp the following year but he claims at that time Brad Aldridge had been let go, so he didn't also didn't understand the severity of the situation. And with Brad Aldridge no longer on the team, he thought the situation, and this is what Jonathan Taves claims, he thought the situation had right. just resolved itself, or at least the right action had been taken. Joe, do you think this impacts how Chicago Blackhawks fans feel about that team of 2010 that was so dominant? I think so. Um, and personally speaking, I, I mean, 11 years ago, I was in college and I was, I'm a Chicago in, I'm a Chicago fan. I, I, I was rooting for that team and kind of fell in love with hockey. And so did the city of Chicago because, you know, for the longest time, the team wasn't even on TV in the city. So there was not a big fan base. And all of a sudden, Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane come out of this team and uh, the 08, or I'm sorry, 07, 08 season and, and just kind of take this city by storm with this young talent and this young core, you know, they made it to the conference final the year before. And then in 2010, they go all the way. And, you know, this is a, a city that hasn't seen a championship since Michael Jordan with the bulls. Well, of course there was the white Sox in 05. Um, but you know, it's a very passionate sports town. Yeah. So it was easy to fall in love with that 2010 team and the head coach, Joel Quinville. And now all of a sudden, all of this is just, coming to light that that maybe some very very unfortunate things were happening that really affected a young hockey prospect and just more importantly a person and I, i think that's really hard for blackhawks fans to swallow right now i can see why joe thank you so much for your time no problem thank you for having me
Joe Brand, a sports reporter at WGN Chicago, talking about how that city is dealing with this explosive Chicago Blackhawk story. And I'm going to say it again. If you have half an hour today, please watch the entire interview that Kyle Beach did with TSN's request head yesterday. It's incredibly moving. He is so amazing and brave to talk about these issues. And I think because that interview was so powerful, it's very hard to listen to Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, Duncan Keith now sit there and say, well, we didn't know anything. But you listen to what Kyle Beach went through and you think there's no way you couldn't have known. There's no way you didn't hear about this and you did nothing. This is Mornings with Simi. What kind of a person are you? I think that essentially is what this Chicago Blackhawks scandal is really all about. Are you the kind of person who hears of something awful happening to someone you know and decides you don't want to do anything because it might inconvenience you or maybe it's not the right time? Or are you the kind of person who stands up and says, no, this cannot be allowed to happen. We can't let this go on. It's about character, right? And I think that's why this whole scandal resonates with so many people. Uh, for more on this now, we're going to talk with Raji Sohal about this. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. What you just said right now really hits hard. Like watching that video yesterday was difficult. It was very difficult it was to hard. watch. It was heartbreaking. It was so sad. But I think, and this can't be said loud enough, that Kyle Beach's interview with TSN was a light where there is so much darkness, where there's so much silence. You know, in hockey, in a lot of sports, there's a don't say anything code. It's the unspoken code. Hockey has a culture of silence. It starts very young. You talk to young players. I am talking like seven, eight yeah. years old, and they will tell you stories of what they hear. Hockey has a culture of silence, and Kyle Beach's interview just shone a major light on that. He was so incredibly He brave. was. I know. People should really listen to the whole thing. Have a listen to what he said happened to him in the locker room after this. Word spread pretty quick. Um, I do believe that everybody in that locker room knew about it because the comments were made in the locker room. They were made on the ice. They were made around the arena with all different people of all different backgrounds, players, staff, media in in the presence. Doesn't that, it sounds horrific, right? So here was this young kid, 20 years old, called up to his dream job. And this is what happens to him. And instead of supporting him, people are talking about it everywhere and gossiping about him. Yeah, it's just wild. And, you know, people say, oh, well, he, he, Kyle Beach told people about the abuse and nothing happened. You know what? I say let's get to a culture where, back up a second, if you have a young, new player, don't you check in on them regularly? Be pointed. Yeah. Ask them about their mental health. Get specific. If you're a coach, ask them how they're being treated in the locker room by the other coaches. Talk about sexual assault. Ask them, have you been assaulted here ever? You know, talk to a newly drafted 20-year-old about what his experience is like. Because when you're thrown into the ocean with a lot of sharks, and we know sexual abuse is about, you know, predators want power. And these sharks are taking power yeah. from innocent young kids coming up. A 20-year-old, I mean, that's I just right on the cusp of having become an adult. And this, this absolutely ruined the next 10 years for him. So again, I tell people, watch the entire TSN interview. But just one more little bit from this is how he dealt 
internally with the assault and eventually the vindication. Have a listen. Um, But until very recently, I did not talk about it. I did not discuss it. I didn't think about it. But now that I'm beginning to heal and I look back, it, it definitely had impacts on my life. I did stupid things. I acted out. I snapped. I did things that I never, never could imagine doing. I relied on alcohol. I relied on drugs. And I'm just so relieved with the news that came out yesterday that I've been vindicated and I can now truly begin the healing process. Oh, I certainly hope so. So yes, watch the entire interview. You can go to the TSN website and find out more. Uh, Rajit, it's hard to listen to, but boy, is it ever moving. It's so moving. And I think that it will affect so many people who find themselves in some situation where someone is trying to take their power from them um, or people who've already been through some kind of sexual abuse. What he did again, Kyle Beach is just so brave. I think he's a hero. He really is. All right. Thank you for that, Raji. And again, it comes down to character, right? It's not the story. It's not about hockey. It's about character and makes you think about what kind of a person you are. This is Mornings with Simi. They seen those people. It was tragic. The impacts of that heat on so many lives were horrible. And uh, paramedics were lashing out, uh, reaching out, um, crying to anybody that would listen. So were the public. Uh, so I think all the the outcomes and the uh, and the effects of the heat dome on lives um, were very real. That's Troy Clifford. Troy is the head of the Ambulance Paramedics uh, of BC, the provincial president of that organization, talking about the impact that the heat dome had. That was, remember that heat event back in late June, early July, on the impact it had on paramedics and people. And we've been talking for months, well, really a couple of years, about the staffing issues that the ambulance service has had in this province. But now there's new information out this morning from the BC Liberal Party, actually, through a freedom of information request that they did, showing that, you know what, this was did not come as news to emergency services in this province, that there were plenty of people sounding the alarm over this. Have more on, here's a listen to more of what Troy Clifford had to say on the Jill Bennett show yesterday. We had talked about it for a significant time prior to the heat dome. So, uh, you know, I, I, none of that surprises me in the sense that uh, our staffing, our shortages, our, our delays, uh, quite frankly, were, were, were an issue leading up to uh, what I call the heat dome was really the straw that broke the camel's back. Again, that is Troy Clifford, Provincial President of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC, speaking on the Jill Bennett Show yesterday. So what was in this Freedom of Information request? What did we learn? Well, joining us now to talk about that is BC Liberal MLA and official opposition critic for Citizen Services, Bruce Banman. Bruce, thanks for being with us. Well, good morning, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I wish it was uh, a better topic, uh, but yeah. uh, thanks for having me. And I wish that too, because tell us what you found out from these documents. Well, through an FOI, which I might add is going to get more costly and more difficult to get if this uh, current bill passes through, um, <clears throat> we found out that uh, the government had been warned. Um, that We found out that, um, that BC's emergency services were drastically under-resourced and ill-equipped to handle the flood of emergency phone calls, that they'd been warned about this. 
um, that ecom was uh, you know where you dial for nine one one was in trouble, and we and they did nothing about it. So, what kind of warnings are we talking about? Who was doing the warning? Well, um, who was doing the warning was um, people like, for instance, uh, the uh, the Health Watch. Um, I'm, I'm I'm sorry, uh, the um, 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 the Services Watch uh, group had warned uh, that they were that ecom was drastically understaffed and. Over a, over a month before the heat dome analysis, the ECOM 911 data analysis concluded that the BC ambulance service delays were compromising public safety. And by June 28, 21, they were struggling to work with maxed out BC emergency health services with over 200 calls waiting in queues to be assigned to an ambulance. Um, it was so bad, Simi, that at one point... Um, the ECOM 911 felt uh, they were so frustrated that they were considered holding a press conference to directly appeal to the government. And the government knew ahead of time that ECOM was in trouble. And so what happened, Bruce, like from the documentation that you can found and what you read, as a result of all these warnings and concerns that were expressed, what, if anything, happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened is because the Premier uh, and his government did nothing, uh, 569 British Columbians lost their lives. Um, this was preventable. You know, this was preventable. You know, there was stories of people driving people to fire stations that they're, you know, that they were in, in such peril. And uh, fire, the fire stations weren't even allowed to transport people to the hospital. So, you know, sadly, there was, there was deaths on, you know, literally on the doorstep of, fire, uh, of a fire hall. Um, you know, what happened was, is that the premier then shrugged it off and said, you know what? Hey, fatalities are a part of life. And he doubled down and said, British Columbians need to take some personal responsibility. You know, who seems to take some personal responsibility? How about the premier? And, you know, we, we how, know about, this- how about he take some personal responsibility? He knew about it and did nothing. And we know that nothing has really changed a whole lot. There's still problems happening in this same regard. That's that's right. And and, and I was going to say that the Human Rights Watch, pardon me, I was struggling for who it was, they placed that blame squarely on the government's shoulders. And they stated that, there, that the lack of a provincial heat response plan and a targeted support for at-risk populations contributed to an unnecessary suffering and 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 deaths uh, this summer. You know, when people phone 911, we're all trained that in an emergency phone 911, you expect somebody to answer the phone. You know, the Premier had no trouble upping his, you know, own personal budget for his office by millions of dollars, yet when it comes to this, left Left, left these people, you know, yeah. left these people stranded with nobody on the other end of the line to answer the calls. I cannot imagine the frustration, the fear, and the angst and, and that people went through when they reached out in their time of need. There was nobody there to answer the phone. I, I mean, imagine that. Now, Bruce, there was nobody there. 
Let me ask you this as well, combining two stories. This information is shocking. How much more difficult will it be to get information like this, though, if this FOI bill is passed? Oh, my goodness, Jimmy. It's going to become, well, first off, you know, for, for a government that doesn't believe in tolls, they're tolling the Freedom of Information Highway. Uh, they are going to make this significantly more difficult. And the $25, it's going to, you know, we've been told in the middle between 5 and 50 that lands at about 25 bucks is what it's going to cost for freedom of information. So if you're a school pack thing and you want to know whether there's been seismic upgrades uh, or what's been done or where the process is, you won't be able to get that. If you're, you know, someone that's concerned with the environment, you're going to pay for that. Um, in addition to which, um, there's a bunch of things that are going to be in regulation, and the public doesn't understand what that means. Regulation means that it will not, that the new rules won't necessarily go onto the floor of the legislature. They're all going to be decided behind closed doors. The privacy commissioner sent a scathing seven-page letter to the government saying this is a step backwards. Um, you know, I believe that democracy needs lots of sunlight and transparency, and this government is doing everything that they can to make it more difficult to get a freedom of information. So reports like this one, I believe, will become significantly more difficult to get. Bruce, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you very much, Simi. Spruce Bandman, BC Liberal MLA and official opposition critic for Citizen Services, talking about the information that party received through Freedom of Information about the fact that there were many officials who were raising the alarm in, you know, in different areas about what was going to happen during the heat dome, about you know, concerns about staffing issues for the ambulance service, for e-com, you name it, and still... Nothing was adequately done to prepare for that or in the months since then adequately deal with that. And again, done through Freedom of Information, which shows you how important that access is. This is Mornings with Simi. There are great haunted houses all over Metro Vancouver that people are putting up and sharing with their community. If you know of an exceptional one, please send it to me, simi at cknw.com, so we can spread the word. Somebody did that yesterday, told us about an amazing haunted house over on the North Shore. So we thought, hey, let's send our Raji Sohal. She's back with us this morning. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I went. And as you know, I took my children. They're only three I know. and five. And they're total darlings, right? Like major sweethearts, but somehow they're also very tough and smart. So I thought, okay, they can handle this. And as we approach the haunted house, we see the cemetery. It's not a hokey one. So that's like how I knew, okay, this is going to be for real. There's like very realistic cobwebs. There's ghosts flying in the wind. And my kids cheerfully going, hey, look, mama, they made dead people. So okay, we can handle this. <laughs> Your children sound exceptional, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and the three-year-old goes, oh, you know, look at the puppets uh, about these like ghoulish, massive skeletons and beasts and a giant zombie wolf in a huge cage. So like they're rationally commenting on the coffins and um, there were like decapitated hanging bloody heads. It's just like swaying nice. in the wind. <laughs> nice. Meanwhile, Simi, the other parents are like audibly, really loudly telling their kids, okay, be scared, Timmy. It's very scary in there. You're going to have nightmares tonight. And I'm like, okay, people don't like uh, ruin uh, this. Telling their children that? Why would they do yeah. that? Oh, I heard several. You're going to have nightmares tonight. 
So this amazing haunted house, and I'm so grateful that you sent me out on this uh, this task to check it out because Haunt of Edgemont, it's it's just incredible. It's put on by a couple, Jody and Trevor. They don't work in the movie industry, um, and most uh, haunted houses are by they're done by people in the movie industry. These people do it just for the love of the art. Uh, our theme this year is like it's only make believe, so it's all based on sort of twisted nursery rhymes and folklore and that kind of stuff. So the top half is a little less intense, the bottom is more so. So the top half you got Little Miss Muffet and the Sandman and the Boogeyman in the Closet. Downstairs we've got the Three Little Pigs, uh, Tooth Fairy, and then Bye Bye Baby Bunting, which a lot of people don't know but you'll find out when you get there. Um, and we just sort of evolved from there. Twist it up. Make it nasty. Roger, I literally can't stop laughing <laughs> because she's talking so calmly about this. And in the meantime, there's people terrified in the background. And Simi, those weren't just kids' voices that you heard screaming, like grown adults. This place was full of surprises. Like that's the scary part. But then there was also a very creepy element to it. And that was in all the attention to detail, like scary old timey music as you move from like one room to another. I've actually put a short video on my Twitter page where you'll hear my husband uh, scream when he got surprised. <laughs> <laughs> if if Chucky scared you, you remember Chucky? Of course. This haunted house is going to frighten you so badly because it's full of those kind of like Chucky type dolls. It's really artful too, like so much detail. You walk through uh, this like narrow greenhouse with um, then dark corridors and flashing lights and then you end up scarily in their basement here's jody again i wasn't sure when we did it this year if nobody was going to show up because of covid and everybody's freaked out or if it was going to be super busy because everybody just wants to get out yeah. it's been super busy how much work does it take um i start in june so we have full basement and two buildings in the back and so we can work throughout the oh, I'm, I draw on the limit of where now I'll start. <laughs> My husband's already talking about next year's, and it's like, we got to get through Christmas first. Um, but yeah, so we just putter away on it. The last September is solid every night, every day, and same with the first two weeks of October. So. Hundreds and hundreds of hours. We just like Halloween, and we're both creative. We like to make things and create. And for me, it's all about the art and the, that kind of idea. Him, it's about the scare. The horror. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love it. Also, I think it's a slippery slope with this kind of stuff, isn't it, Raji? Because you do it one year because you think it'll be fun. Well, you get a huge reaction. Neighbors love it. People love it. And then you think, okay, I'm going to make it bigger next year. And before you know it, three or four years go by. And now there's this huge expectation from people that you better do this. Oh, totally. And it was also amazing to see people have such a good time together. And I think that's the addictive part of it for them too. They make this wonderful haunted house and then so many people come. They're really contributing to the community in that way. Simi, I haven't been together with strangers and laughed that hard in exactly 20 months, right? This was like kids screaming, adults walking out with dilated pupils. People were screaming and then like laughing at the same time. And there's, you know, when there's time to brace yourself in these haunted houses, because you know, it's full of surprises. And then yet it's impossible not to react when something jumps out at you and not just something. I'm talking about people too. People jump out at you. And that was really frightening. Now you're probably wondering how my kids did. And my kids yes. were 
doing great. They were doing phenomenally until, and I thought of our Gordon McDonald here because I know he doesn't like clowns, until the clowns showed up. They were so frightening. The clowns showed up. And you know why they were scary? Because they were quiet. One crept up next to me and I could feel someone close. Wait, I'm sorry. An evil clown crept up quietly next to you? Yeah, and I could feel him in like my 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 vicinity. So I'm about to turn around and then he honks. He's got this like the honking necklace. Yes, of thing course. On. It's a clown, yeah. Yes. And <laughs> I turn around and he's just blinking at me with this ghoulish face. Who is not gonna be scared of that? So that definitely scared my children. <laughs> oh my I can think actually right now Gord McDonald is probably hiding under his desk because that sounds <laughs> terrifying. So no nightmares though from your kids? Like what was the reaction afterwards? Yeah, the three-year-old found it pretty amusing. And then the five-year-old, she, her conclusion was that was all fantastic, save the clowns. So unfortunately, this might have been the start of a a Gord McDonald, I'm scared of clowns thing for life. So we'll see. (laughs) You scarred them. Oh, Raji, you scarred them. You did it without, but you know what? This is a good conversing point for you as well. Just to say that, oh, yeah, everybody does. It's fine. You're good. You're good. You don't have to be scared of clowns. You can go back next year. Yeah. We love talking about reality versus uh, the pretend world, the make-believe world. They were also, I think, super impressed with how these two people with just a passion for making things for their art and for their community made this incredible event that they do every single year. And it's totally selfless. They just enjoy getting people together for a good time. I love this. So what's it called again? And what's the area where they can find people can find it? Yeah, so this one was Haunt of Edgemont, and it's in Edgemont Village in North Vancouver um, on Emerald Street. And I am now, because this like reminded me of how awesome the experience of haunted houses can be, I'm actually going to add some other ones to my roster for the next two days, and I'll take the kids out to it. I mean, these are, my children are still so young, right, that they go to sleep very early. So it was just a trip to be outside when it's that dark, let alone, you know, encountering a cemetery and uh, creepy Chucky dolls and and the whole thing. (laughs) I just love the whole thing. Well, you're such a great sport about it. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Thanks, Simi. (laughs) That's our Raji Sohal talking about Haunted Edgemont, which is an amazing haunted house in the Edgemont Village area over in North Vancouver. Thank you to our listeners who sent us that suggestion. And if you've got one from your neighborhood, a haunted house, or just some amazing Halloween decorations that you think we could check out, I'd love to drive by and see or walk by and see Halloween decorations. Send them to me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So the BC Construction Safety Alliance has created a new website. It's called Remind.ca. It's a got a mental health toolbox on there to help improve workers in the construction industry's access to mental health information and services. Seems simple, right? You're like, yeah, why didn't they do this before? Well, it's been a long time coming. There are new statistics that show a majority of construction workers have mental health and or substance misuse concerns. We're talking 55% of construction workers said that. So how will this new website work? How can construction workers access this for you know the easiest information possible for them? Well, joining us now is Diana Versers, an experienced workplace mental health expert and a Simon Fraser University instructor. Diana, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Amy, for having me. So what does this website involve? Uh, well, this website is a one-stop shop. Uh, everything written and prepared for construction workers 
uh, a place where they can go to find information and resources about their mental health and a really, really exciting element of the cornerstone of the project is a video that we've prepared that um, tells the story of a construction worker who kind of has these two, um, these two different, you know, alter egos. So he's the high performing guy on the job site, but he has this other side of him that's going on. And the film paints a picture of that really as an introduction to talk about mental health and to um, kind of normalize the experience for construction workers. So that that's the key, isn't it, though, Diana? Because it's been so difficult to get, I think, people in the construction industry to even talk about this. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Simi. You know, the construction industry has some really, um, uh, you know, really challenging but interesting facts about it. So the one that probably everyone can recognize is that it's predominantly male, and, um, you know, we actually partnered with an expert from UBC who works with only with men in um, mental health, and he specializes in helping men um, be able to actually reach out for help and what is it that's getting in the way. So he helped us design this film and also the tools written in a way that will make it easier for them to step forward. You know, men actually don't even like talking about their physical health, no. let alone their mental health. Yeah, and I wonder too, with the construction industry, I'm glad that they're talking about the misuse, like a substance use. And that's been a huge concern in recent years, especially with the opioid uh, epidemic, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, it really uh, has brought um, to the uh, brought awareness to it, partly because of some of the statistics that are staggering. Um, with the opioid crisis, we know that more than half of the workers in BC who were impacted by overdose work in construction. So literally, all the other industries combined workers can't match um, that what has happened in the construction industry. So you can imagine this has really rocked their world. Yeah, that's a shockingly high number, Diana. And considering that we've known that for, you know, a few years now, why haven't we done something like this before? Uh, well, it's really interesting. So from my perspective, like I come from uh, an occupational health consulting perspective, mental health has taken a long time to make it forward uh, into the priority. And I think there is no doubt, especially after what we've seen in the last year and a half, that mental health is part of a health and safety conversation. So I think the BC Construction Safety Alliance, like a huge shout out to um, the people who direct this um, this organization. They are the um, the owners and leaders of construction companies in BC. They see that reality every day in their own employees and their workforce, people who are needing help and not reaching out. And nobody was stepping up to do this. So they actually reached into their own pockets. And uh, really, they approached me, they said, hey, we've seen that industries can do specific initiatives that can make a difference. We want to do something impactful, something that is going to, uh, you know, get a lot of airtime. We want tools that are free. And they were willing to do that. And they have been behind the project from the beginning. So how does this start then for somebody who's in the construction industry? Does it start with an injury, perhaps, and then they have they can't afford to take time off and they just have to keep working? Uh, so you're speaking about how do substance use issues yes, start? Yeah. Well, you know, there's actually researchers working on that right now, specifically trying to figure out in construction, what are the elements that contribute to it? Um, but we know lots about substance use. Um, substance use really is a way of coping. It's a behavior that, you know, 
isn't always terribly maladaptive and not useful, but it can be problematic. The construction industry has some really unique features. Uh, It's a super physical environment, so people are more likely to get hurt. And sometimes, um, you know, that might lead to pain medication so they can continue working. But there's other things, too. You know, it's a really high-pressure environment, um, and it's fairly, you know, fairly stigmatized around mental health. So people um, are find it really difficult to come forward. So if they come to the website then, what what will they see? Well, they're going to see, uh, first of all, right at the top, they're going to see the uh, Lone Hunter, which is our six-minute film. Um, please poke on that, watch it. It's a great film. But they'll also see, so as an individual, there's six parts clearly laid out uh, for information that you can look to just literally a click away. So um, everywhere from, you know, recognizing mental health challenges. So how do I know if I might be having issues? So it describes what you might be experiencing. And then also links to some uh, online tools where they can do a quick little test. Uh, We also have links to other resources that are available um, to, uh, you know, anybody. It doesn't actually only have to be construction. Some of the resources are directly construction related, but others are um, resources that exist in BC um, that anyone can access. There's another section on alcohol and drug use that really gives you some opportunity to um, consider maybe your own substance use or if you're concerned about someone else's. There's some tips in there about how to help someone else um, connect with resources and, you know, how to help myself, some some tips and steps that you can take yourself, how to help a colleague. And then for employers as well, um, we have a special section about how to respond to your team's mental health needs and recognize it. And then at the top of the, the website, um, you know, this is where we're really hoping uh, if, you know, you're a construction worker out there and you watch this film and you think, wow, that film is amazing you can actually take this film for free onto your work site and use it as a toolbox talk. We have resources on the site that can help you, um, you know, know how to prepare for that conversation and then really help spread the word and make it a little more normal part of us, yeah. how, we, how we're looking after our mental health. I think that is the key right there. You just hit it. It is making this more normal for people to talk about this. And it sounds like a big effort is to just let people know we hear you, like we see you, we, we we know what you're going through. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, and make it okay to be learning about it. Especially if we're very physically minded, we kind of learn what our bodies need to be nourished. We learn, you know, if we feel our back is hurting, we learn at physiotherapy maybe, or somebody helps us learn the exercises we need and the movements to help our our body strengthen. This is really a way to learn how your mind works and, and learn that, right? Like, can be really nervous about going to seek help. Um, And we hear that, Um, you know, UBC experts are telling us that um, males in particular, they're a little bit frightened about what that experience is. It's really just about learning how your mind works. So you can do that here on the website as a great starting point. Well, thank you so much for your time on this this morning. Thank you, Simi.
That is Diana Visser, an experienced workplace mental health expert and Simon Fraser University instructor, talking about this new website that is essentially targeted at the construction industry. They did it with the help of the BC Construction Safety Alliance. It's the re-mind.ca website. It's a, got a mental health toolbox, essentially, to improve construction workers' access to mental health information and services. I really feel like this has been one of the missing pieces of the puzzle to help people in that industry. 